Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Religion, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Tedum Salonkumer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Swenson to talk about her new book titled A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible. This is a really interesting book. Um, when I went through this book, um, I kind of felt that since I come from a Christian culture, I felt that, okay, I think the information here will be not so much new to me. And since I am a scholar in the area of religion, I might have read so many, I mean, I have read so many things in the area of uh, Christianity and the history itself. But I think surprisingly, this book was something which was very interesting in that sense. And most importantly, for me personally, as a scholar, I've always longed to look at work on Bible literature by someone who is outside of the discipline of theology. And I think this book is the book, and I think this book does just justice to the subject itself. So let me come back to the author herself, Dr. Swenson, and let us uh, talk about and dig deep into the book itself. So Dr. Swenson, tell us something about yourself. <laughs> Sure. Well, thank you first, Tia, for inviting me to talk with you about this book. It really is always fun to visit with folks who have some interest in the topic. And I really um, am delighted that you found it to be so engaging and interesting and helpful. I also grew up in a Christian background. I I was born and raised in northern Minnesota, which is an area where a lot of Scandinavian Mm. Lutherans landed. And so I was raised um, in a very, what I call a kind of garden variety, Protestant background, um, Lutheran. And I was lucky in that our community really um, celebrated learning. So I know I I came to appreciate sometime later that for some folks, there is some some strong suspicion around learning about um, the Bible because of some concerns that it might undermine faith. Um, So I feel lucky to have been raised in a community in which those things, learning and faith, went hand in hand. And that is indeed the kind of trajectory I've continued um, in my studies. As you noted, um, I, I do have a PhD in this area. And so I studied it to the nth degree, and I still feel like I'm just beginning to understand and learn. There's so much to know. So I came to um, religion, actually, a little through the back door, religious studies. I was a biology major in college, but I went to a college, a Lutheran college, where we also had to take some religion classes. And I took a class in the Bible, an introductory to the Bible class, And in that class, I learned about a word play in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. We find in the original Hebrew language uh, a word play that eludes us in a lot of English translations. And that is that um, in that story of the creation of the human beings that takes place in the Garden of Eden, this is the Adam and Eve creation story, We read in the Hebrew, um, and I learned this in college, and it had me hooked, that that God fashions the um, human being, Adam, which is uh, often rendered in English translations as Adam with a capital A. But in Hebrew, there's no distinction between capital and lowercase letters. And that word Adam can mean human being in a very generic way, not specific to gender or sex. So Adam was created out of Adama, uh, which in our English translations is soil or land or ground or dirt, and none of which have that um that poetic resonance or that wordplay that the Hebrew does. Adam Mm. out of Adama. Uh, Human Mm. out of humus is the closest we might get. Anyway, I've long had an interest and concern, a passion for the non-human natural world um, and environmental issues uh, inform a lot of my thinking and my way of being in the world. And when I saw that and learned that, 
this intimate relationship between human beings and the ground, the land, the soil, the earth, the stuff of the world, um, that this intimate connection between human beings and our world, I thought, wow, there may be a lot more in this book than I'm missing in only reading it in English translation. So although I continued with my um, biology studies, and I'm grateful for having done that, I loved this, I love the sciences. I also um, continued to pursue religious studies. And I came to finally learn biblical Hebrew, the language, of course, of the Hebrew Bible, which is uh, basically the Christian Old Testament, and, um, and some Greek to do the new, to learn the New Testament, to read that in its original language, and, and on and on. My um, specialty was in the history and literature of ancient Israel. So that is the Hebrew Bible specifically. But in the course of doing that, of course, you learn about culture, you learn history, geography, um, philology. We get, I got to do some archaeology. So um, I, I mean to say, I guess it's just a, a wonderfully rich area of study, no matter what your beliefs, honestly, just to indulge in the study of these texts is at least one lifetime's endeavor, several, I think, (laughs) one could use. You also, you have also mentioned a little bit in your introduction now, but I also want to ask you why, again, a book on Bible? I mean, the scholarship on biblical studies so much. I mean, people are producing so much, writing so much, so much of funding is there, so much of uh, work is there, but uh, why another book on Bible? That's right. There is so much. There is not, however, a whole lot of um, information about the Bible without a religious overlay for people to know a little bit about it. That is, there are so, so, so many books that uh, sort of unpack the Bible for people of faith that providing different interpretations or maybe devotional materials, none of which I mean to disparage, but there aren't very many opportunities to learn, for instance, about where the Bible came from or how the Bible was formed or about the languages that the Bible was originally written in. And so I have want in my teaching, I've taught for many years in a secular university setting as a university professor at a state school, which means that there's no religious affiliation. And so I taught about the Bible for people who came from all different faiths and many people who ascribe to no faith at all. And sometimes people would say, how could you do that? How can you teach without interpreting the Bible? And I said, well, listen, you know, what is the first book in the Bible that you would come to when you open the cover? And anyone who has had any um, experience with the Bible, or if they just picked one up, no matter what their religious belief, would observe that it's this book titled Genesis. And that doesn't matter what you believe. That's still the first book of the Bible. In other words, there are facts about the Bible that sometimes are hard to get because there's so much information about or so much effort that people have made to say what God tells you to do based on what their interpretation of the biblical texts are. This is kind of a long roundabout answer to say um, that I have been really motivated by giving people the tools to make sense of the text for themselves. So, That was um, especially true of a book I published some years ago called Bible Babble, the subtitle of which is Making Sense of the Most Talked About Book of All Time. And in that, I kind of tried to provide folks with a Bible 101 that was a sort of everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but didn't know enough to ask, like, who is Adam or who is Jonah? And um, where is Israel and why do we care? Things like that. Um, 
But with this book, I wanted to go a little bit deeper and a little bit farther with some of further with some of what people might know um, or want to know about the text. Namely, uh, that anyone who has dipped into the Bible at all, tried to read it at all, will quickly encounter things that are utterly bewildering. Um, and if not that, then, or I should say, and also um, sometimes things that are, are appalling or off-putting and, and nobody really wants to talk about them. There seems to be a sense that if, especially if you're a person of faith, that that would be somehow to undermine the Bible or to call it into question or to somehow um, diminish its power by noting that, for instance, yeah. it disagrees yeah. with itself at times. Or there are texts that um, make us kind of uh, uncomfortable in our chairs that are that seem to suggest it's yeah. a good idea to kill a bunch of people. And so... These, what I wanted to do was give people permission yes. to recognize those things and not just to recognize them and then to say, oh, and so it's all nonsense and we should just get rid of it. But instead to ask, okay, then what do we do with that? What do we do with those uncomfortable things? Or how do we make sense of the stuff that's utterly bewildering? This mm -hmm. is an ancient text. You know, it, it predates us by... Um, some of the texts may predate us yeah. by a couple of millennia. And so they're already very um, odd to our ears. They reflect times and places that are very different than our own. Um, but we seldom take the moment to recognize that fact because the Bible is so pervasive. It's um, It continues to be so... Um, so much a part of people's lives that um, we are inclined to forget its um, its antiquity and also to try to smooth over those things that make us uncomfortable or seem not to make a lot of sense. So I wanted to, to just give people an opportunity to recognize those things and honor their, yes, yes. Honor their observations and yes. also to help Yes. then make some sense yeah, of them. Uh, that also reflects uh, the one, the line that you have written in your introduction. You have said that this book is an opportunity to step outside assumptions about dogma, traditional interpretations, and receive opinions. I think that is something uh, which is very great about this book. And this book, uh, in a sense, as you have said, is a very dense book with uh, 12 chapters, four parts. And uh, in this very podcast interview, we cannot really go into all the chapters, but I think there are some important uh, aspects that I want to talk about, and uh, which where from here on we'll go and dig into the chapter itself, uh, this important aspects that um, I want to talk about. So uh, you have mentioned uh, this distinction, uh, distinction called Bible as literature and Bible as scripture, right? So for someone who is a Christian, uh, I mean, a Christian, mostly he or she reads Bible as a scripture, but then also at the same time, a person who is a Christian also at the same time, a scholar, uh, reads or try to read the Bible in both sense of the literature and scripture and try to really make sense of it. So, I mean, how do we make this distinction, the Bible as literature and a scripture, and then, you know, how do people also at the same time, how do we apply these two together in any, in the, our day-to-day -day life, right? How, how does it work? Yeah, um, thanks for bringing that up. <clears throat> I think that the distinctions, just as you note, they begin mm. to fall apart a bit the more the clo more closely you engage with the text, um, because it comes to us as a text. So it is it it is in its form literary. It's a literary text, and one of the ways that we then need to relate to it is as something um, that's written. So one of the kind of general categories of um, approach that we can use to better understand it is um, a literary one. And one of the first questions that we would ask 
of any text is what kind of a text is it? Is this a poem? Is it a fable? Is it a, is it a story? Is it a law? Is it um, prophecy? Is it sermonic? Uh, is it an effort to explain how things came to be, an etiologic um, tale? So that matters, of course, right? Because we would le- read a legal text differently than we would read a bedtime story, than we would read a poem, or then we would read maybe a prayer. And of course, the Bible includes so many different kinds of literatures. Uh, so just recognizing that is, again, a part of recognizing the Bible as literature, and it informs, for people of faith, it can inform how they understand that text to apply to their faith lives. So again, they'll read a legal text differently than they would read an etiologic tale, um, a story about beginnings or how things come to be. That said, I think that people of faith sometimes will read um, one of those kinds of texts as um, without, without uh, thinking that they shouldn't really think any farther about, further about it for themselves. That, for instance, let's take Genesis chapter 1, the story of the creation of the world in seven days. God speaks and the world comes into being. God said, let there be, and there was, right? That's that story of creation. It's, um, it's a beautiful story. Uh, it's one that a number of people of faith have felt they need to accept as a kind of scientific um, explication of the universe's origins. But if they will look at it again with um, those literary spectacles, they'll appreciate that it is very um, formulaic. It is um, embedded in a larger narrative that matters. Um, but it is, uh, it is likely also scholars have um, unpacked a number of the different um, specific uh, characteristics about it, including its language, um, to situate it in a situate its origins in a particular time and place, can come to appreciate that it has import for them as persons of faith, separate from a literalistic application as a scientific mm-hmm. description of the universe's origins. That it is um, a beautiful description of the um, grandeur of God, the ability of God um, to make order out of chaos, um, and that this world, as God has declared it, creator of it, is good. Um, That is a, in that story we read, God regularly reflects on God's creation and notes that it is good. That is a different way of um, reading as a person of faith than the very literalistic reading. This more literary reading as a person of faith, I, I argue, <laughs> is um, more true to the text itself. And it is um, more true to the reader and the reader's experience. We know that um, that the world was not created, that the world did not come into being in seven 24-hour days. We, we know this. <laughs> and so um, to try to force our sacred text to conform to some artificial expectation for it, is, I think, actually to do our, our faith a disservice um, when we can, as persons of faith, 
read with those literary spectacles, reading the Bible as literature can enrich our faith. Um, but it may mean we have to, we see it differently. I'd like to think yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit I wider, think, uh, thinking, a little more you know, broad. In terms of a broader perspective is something uh, which is really interesting. And I think this is something which uh, people should really think about, right? And really try to maneuver uh, that thinking process through this. Now, uh, coming to the another point uh, where we have said that we don't have the original Bible. Now, I think this statement itself is something which will raise many eyebrows, uh, as you would, um, you know, know. And I think, uh, so what do you really mean by this one when you say that we don't have the original Bible? And, you know, what are you getting, I mean, where are you trying to drive this? Yeah. 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 It's yeah. hard to get your head around if... Um, you've been raised with this text as God's word and it's um, authoritative. It's very, it's a discrete body of literature that you identify as authoritative for your, for your sacred tradition to find that there is no original document that contains all of these and the way that we have them packaged as a Bible today is a bit, it was a bit earth shattering for me when I learned that. Um, that said, we have, of course, ancient, we have fragments of um, texts that are reflective of our Bibles today. But um, the Bibles that we use today are, for one thing, multiple. <laughs> so um, Protestant Christians have one set of texts and it's different than Roman Catholic Christians. Um, it's different than uh, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, different than uh, Jews who have um, the earliest collection of texts that is part of the Christian Bible, their Hebrew Bible. Um, and that, Hebrew Bible is actually different from an ancient translation of it that informs our Christian collections, namely the Septuagint, a Greek translation. Um, so there are actually, when we talk about the Bible, and I do it all the time, it's we, we sort of have to use some kind of language, right? We talk about the Bible. It still is important to recognize that my Bible may be different mm -hmm. from my neighbor's Bible. Um, that if my neighbor, if I'm, I'm a Protestant Christian, my neighbor actually has more stuff in her Bible if she's yeah. a Roman Catholic Christian than I do. Um, and that reflects the fact that the Bible developed over a long period of time. Uh, it didn't just all fall out of heaven in one moment in the form that we are reading it today. And unless a person is reading ancient Greek and biblical Hebrew and Aramaic, then they're reading a translation. And every translation is interpretation. Uh, there is no way around that. And it's not, it's not to... Um, to criticize the translations as somehow lesser than an original. It's just very, it's very important to recognize there's no way you can translate a text without making choices mm. as a translator about whether to use one word or a different word, whether to um, apply a certain syntax or um, a different syntax to order those words differently. Uh, we don't have punctuation in the earliest biblical manuscripts. So where do you put a period? Where do you put the comma? Where is a line break um, in the course, in the um, case of, for instance, poetic literature, yeah. prophetic texts? So um, we, it would be great if we had, in a way it would be great, but let me, I'll tell you why I think this is, what we have is the best of all the worlds. <laughs> In a way, it would be great, or we seem to assume that there is somewhere one collection of bound pages 
that is the original Bible that we can all just go back to and look at what the original says. We don't have that. I like that we don't have that because I think I think that reflects the dynamism of the Bible that we tend to forget um, better than anything. That is, the Bible grew up over a long period of time. Language is always changing. Our world is always changing. And so we need to use our best selves when we come into relationship with this text that we are partners yes. in the meaning-making um, when, we, when we encounter the biblical text. And because we are, we need to, again, bring our best selves to that project, be the most responsible in terms of our intellect, in terms of our ethics, in terms of our, our um, engagement in the greater world. That is, um, so now I'll, this is one, another reason I wanted to write this particular book was to give people pause from, from using the Bible to beat up on other people and or engage in activities that are destructive mm. to our greater world. Because I don't think my faith and I feel so strongly about this, is informed by not doing those kinds of things. And I love this text. And I believe that this text does not, that God, through this text, <laughs> does not want us to use it to destroy our world or to undermine the integrity of other living things, including other people. So um, when we encounter these strangenesses in the Bible, the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that make us bewildered and confused, I think those are wonderful opportunities for us to, again, dig down into our best selves and say, okay, what is it that I know I ought to be about in the world? And how does this text challenge me to do that, to think in those ways? To, um, to learn as well as I can learn to be as kind and as generous a person as I can be <laughs> with an idea and an eye to the greater good. So there you go. That's part of, the, part of what under, underlies yeah. everything and, I do. Uh, as you have explained, understanding the Bible in this way, as you had said, uh, brings out the dynamism of the Bible. But uh, um, so going on, right, uh, you have said that uh, the word of God is more an ongoing conversation than absolute declaration. Now, for any person, right, uh, coming to a religious text, he or she will always try to find for absolutes, for absolutes for their life in terms of what the text say. I mean, since they believe that that text comes from God as such, something uh, as such. So I think. How, how does uh, we understand this one? So you, you say that this word of God is an ongoing conversation. So what does ongoing conversation mean? And then conversation, then absolute declaration. So, I mean, what are these, some of these absolute declarations that you want to do away with, right? So I think what do you really <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. So there are... Um, there are disagreements within yes. the Bible itself. Um, we find, and I'll, it's hard for me yeah. to ever get out of the book of Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much there. But in the very beginning, we have two very different creation stories. We have a creation of the world in seven days in which God is a disembodied voice who speaks the world into being in a very yeah. ordered manner. And it is good. And God rests on that seventh day. That's our Sabbath, right? The Bible, just in our collection of texts, in every Bible that you have, the very next set of texts is a different story of creation. Now, there's no break in the text that we have to indicate that these are two different stories. But again, the Bible grew up over a long period of time. We know that they didn't come to us as books. Um, but these uh, were collected 
over a period of time gathered and assembled. The chapter and verse designations that we have in our Bibles today are very late. Um, They come from far closer to the modern period than the ancient texts themselves. So anyway, there's no clear break between these two, but they're Hmm. very, very different stories. In the creation of the world in seven days, again, God is an, an out there deity who just speaks and things happen. In the Garden of Eden story, God is very anthropomorphic. Very, God is very human-like, walks around. God walks. God fashions with God's hands. God breathes uh, into the nostrils of Adam, this breath of life. God is a very, looks like a person, a human being for all intents and purposes in that story. Those are very different images of God. And that's before we talk about the um, creation itself, which again is very different as represented between the, in those two stories. Are animals created before or after human beings? Uh, it, it's different in those two stories. Um, the, so we have disagreements within the Bible itself. Now, there are, of course, loads of folks who have recognized those disagreements and have gone to great lengths to explain why they aren't really disagreements at all. But I find that to be preposterous. They are disagreements. And there are other flat out, um, well, we have two sets of prophecies, for instance, about um, one that I just love, I think many do, that appears actually verbatim exactly the same in both the books of Isaiah and of Micah. Um, and it prophesies a time of peace when they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a beautiful passage. And we actually um, have in our um, New York City, I believe it is, beautiful statue that was given to us, I want to say by the Soviet Union, boy, don't quote me on this, but uh, that is a representation of this time of peace. It's gorgeous. There is also within the same collection in the Bible, the same in the books of the prophets, we find in the prophet Joel, a prophecy telling a time when they shall beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears, literally, literally the opposite of what we have in Micah and Isaiah. Again, people can uh, use all sorts of fancy shenanigans to talk about how those are to be reconciled. Um, But those are just a couple of many, many places in which the collection as a whole contains expressly Um, disparate and disagreeing points. I think, again, that we can talk about the historical context of the Bible's development, that it grew up over a long period of time, a gathering of different kinds of texts. So you're going to have different kinds of texts. I also am a firm believer in the intelligence and informed nature of the persons who collected those texts that and and we can we can always bring god into all this like god was present for all of this or the spirit moved and so on and so forth right at any rate i don't think it was random that things uh were collected as they had been and were put in the placements that we have again that will vary from bible to bible um but when you have that you have an invitation as a reader to recognize these disagreements and to then treat your relationship to the text differently than as a dictatorial um, absolutist declaration of God. But instead, maybe God is saying, look, here's an opportunity for you to think for yourself. Here's an opportunity for you to join the conversation." Um, how, let's talk about, um, divorce. There are a couple in the Hebrew Bible, a couple of different texts, uh, on that matter, if you will, in which in one case, uh, divorce is said to be, you should avoid 
basically at all cost. Um, and another in which the people of the community are commanded to divorce uh, their, these, these significant others. So, so what do we do with that? I think because we have these, these disagreeing texts, ancient, we have an opportunity to get into the conversation ourselves and say, okay, we have to think about this for ourselves. And what, what does this mean? What, maybe what did it mean back then? Those texts that forbade divorce, we know were coming from a highly patriarchal culture in which a woman would have been disenfranchised and made tremendously vulnerable by divorce. So to divorce would be a social injustice, an act of social injustice. It's not necessarily that they didn't get along. <laughs> it's a different, we're talking about a different set of um, values and relationship. Um, recognizing that, um, we may be more sympathetic to that perspective. Gosh, if a man had all the property and all the power and he just decides to discard uh, this wife who had was by the cultural norms dependent on him for everything, that would have been a grave criminal act on his part. Um, now, over here, we have this command to divorce in this case, it is a post-exilic context in which the peoples had been, uh, their numbers had been sorely diminished, and they were at risk of losing their identity entirely. And so you get this moment when the leader of the community says, we cannot have this intermarriage happening right now because then we'll never exist as a discrete, definable community. Um, so that helps us to make some sense of it, um, to make some sense of each of those. And then um, it gives us an opportunity to ask out of our own historical and cultural context, how might we think about those kinds of things? Understanding that there isn't, necessarily a dictated um, answer that God is giving us in the Bible. But instead, God is asking us to think for ourselves is what I, I suggest. I think with these texts, we uh, people of faith have an opportunity to think for ourselves and that, that God is asking that of us. Yes, uh, that's uh, really true. And coming to the text itself, right, and also at the same time coming to Genesis again, uh, I was really intrigued by your, yeah. you know, exposition on Adam and Eve of uh, the creation, right? God creating Adam and Eve, and you know that that uh, process of exposition was something which came as a quite something very different to me, and that is where you say that the fluid plural singular nature of God anticipates the singular plural nature of human in the story. So what is this fluid plural singular nature of God? And what is the singular plural nature of humans uh, that is portrayed in the Bible? I mean, how do uh, someone understand this? So um, in the yes. very beginning of the book of Genesis, we have a name for God that is in its um, its etymology is its grammar is plural. Mm -hmm. The word Elohim is a word in Hebrew that can mean gods with a and strictly it means gods plural with an s on the end, and we usually render that, of course, with a lowercase g, a generic noun. Um, but because it is used of um, the deity, the, a creator deity here at the beginning of the book. And in Hebrew, the verbs in sentences, you will, uh, the verbs identify the number, person, and gender of the subject. And so when the verb suggests, not suggests, when the verb form is singular, 
then we know that that Elohim is meant to be a singular deity, though the word itself is plural. Um, so that's one piece of it. Um, but I think probably what I was also talking about in that context is the um, relationship between Adam and uh, God in those two creation stories. So we talked a little bit earlier about that word Adam and how it is um, usually written capital A Adam as a name. And that doesn't, it's not necessarily wrong, but that word in Hebrew is um, always lowercase. Everything is, everything is either all uppercase or all lowercase. There's no distinction between upper and lowercase in Hebrew. And um, but sometimes a word will have a definite article marker in Hebrew that will indicate it as um, that we should put up a capital um, a capital letter at the front as a name. But Adam is a very common word in Hebrew, meaning simply human being. It also can mean man, um, gender specific, as opposed, if you will, to woman. But uh, Adam is, again, super, super common, means human being. We have in Genesis chapter one, that really intriguing passage of the crea- that describes the creation of the human beings, in which God says, let us create Adam in our image. So we have this plural declaration that God makes uh, in that text. Now, historical context, appreciating historical context, we know that the ancient Near East, uh, out of which these texts came, uh, the cultures there, including uh, the Ugaritic that informed a good bit of what we have in the Hebrew Bible, thought of um, the heavens, if you will, is populated by deities, plural, who were um, subject, if you will, to a, a, a head god, a sort of chairman of the board. But um, still, there was a kind of collective effort there. So this may reflect that kind of divine council model, where God, in true ancient Near Eastern godly fashion, consults with the other beings, um, the other divine beings. So let us make in our image. But the text does toggle between the singular and the plural in that story. Now, the, the one created in the image of God is Adam. Again, then we have this word that can do all sorts of different kinds of things. It can be human being, it can be man, it can be Adam. Um, but here it seems very, the best translation is probably of human being because God then, when you look at this passage, creates Adam simultaneously as male and female. Um, so male and female, God created them. So you have, um, uh, a plural name, a God with a name that's plural, that mm-hmm. operates as a singular, that creates mm-hmm. Adam, mm-hmm. which is a singular noun, but is collective for human beings, creating mm-hmm. simultaneously female and male forms of Adam that mm-hmm. somehow together are the mm-hmm. image of God. So there is a there is a singular plural plural singular business happening in that first creation story. And then when you get to the second creation story, it doesn't completely get cleared up. You have Adam created out of Adama um, by this much more anthropomorphic god form of god who is rather quickly um, identified by God as Mm. having a lack that Adam is alone. There isn't a partner Mm. kind of fit unto um, this Adam to share 
Adam's life with. So in that story, it's somewhat humorous. God, at that point, creates the animals, right? And um, it's a kind of trial and error effort to find a partner for Adam. God creates the animals and parades them in front of Adam to see if there might be a partner fit for Adam. Um, but alas, there wasn't. But Adam names the animals. Notice how I keep saying Adam instead of Adam, because that's the way the story tells it. This is Adam. And it's only later then, after this somewhat failed experiment, there was no partner fit for, the, for Adam from among the animals. Then God anesthetizes Adam, puts Adam to sleep, and performs the surgical procedure takes from the side of Adam and fashions another. And that is Isha and Ish, woman and man. So it's at that point in the story, and only at that point, that we have the delineation between man and woman. It's only after Adam has been separated out, if you will, into two parts that we have man and woman expressly um, and specific gender specific language. Now, a biblical person who knows Hebrew reading this will say, yeah, but Adam is all, remember how the verbs identify the number person and gender? of their subjects, all the verbs associated with Adam were masculine singular. So it doesn't that mean that Adam was Adam? But no, because Hebrew does not have a neuter. It doesn't have a pronoun that is neither male nor female. Like German has a neuter pronoun, right? Hebrew does not have that. Neither does English. Um, we have either masculine or feminine. And whenever there is a collective, Hebrew defaults to the masculine. So it doesn't really answer it. <laughs> it still is Adam, a clear masculine Adam, until we have that separation of Adam into Isha and Ish, female and male, woman, excuse me, and man, those very gender-specific words. So... Again, you have this, um, this plural, singular plurality happening within Adam and the creation of um, human beings. And especially, again, in the first creation story, the creation of the male and female human simultaneously as the image of God is really provocative. You know, it's, um, we tend to think about God in masculine terms, again, the Hebrew Bible, all all of the biblical texts. So the New Testament, of course, um, comes as later than the texts of the Hebrew Bible, but we're still in a deeply patriarchal culture, and so it's not. It shouldn't surprise us that um, a lot of it focuses on men. That that God is predominantly represented with masculine language and imagery, um, but as persons of faith we can say, okay, so the Bible does that. We understand its historical contexts and cultural contexts out of which it comes. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean to me as a person of faith that God is a guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is where the kind of fluid nature of who God is and what human beings are meant to be is kind of like overpowered by the cultural norms. And I think that is something which is very important to understand and realize in terms of digging into the text, right? And I think that is something which you have really made clear in, uh, in your book as Savannah. That, is, that was something really interesting to me. And coming on to the next one, um, you said that the idea of demons as evil mischief makers that could possess a person with malevolent spiritual forces and cause all sorts of trouble doesn't fit the whole Bible. Now, uh, so how, how does the Bible portray this demon or evil us? Yeah, we don't have... Um, so in the New Testament, we have some language of demons yes. and those yes. possessing spirits. Um, but that is actually a small portion of the entirety of the Bible. Uh, we do have 
references in biblical, other biblical texts to beings other than God. Mm. But um, one of the most intriguing is um, Satan or the Satan, um, whose evolution we witness mm-hmm. <laughs> within the biblical text. <clears throat> the Satan is, um, that word is a Hebrew word, is um, in our modern parlance, uh, Satan with a capital S is the evil alternative of God, is, um, you know, a devil who presides over hell. Satan is uh, the personification of wrongdoing and evil in our world. <clears throat> but that's, that's actually a very late development. And in the biblical texts, somewhat surprising to a lot of people, God actually operates as a Satan. Mm. Um, God sends a Satan uh, as um, a kind of angel, actually. So, and not, not a fallen angel, but mm. um, a messenger of God yeah. to do God's bidding. Mm. And Satan is more like a prosecuting attorney mm. in some of the earliest texts. And in most of the Hebrew Bible, Satan is um, is among the divine beings, is um, a, one who really sort of ferrets out, can kind of ferret out the truth of a thing. We see the Satan, especially in the book of Job. Um, but then we do find in the New Testament, it, uh, Satan taking on legs, so to speak, as an alter ego or the, the evil, evil opposite of, mm. of God at the tempter. We find the tempter of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, so those, that whole panoply of, yeah, bad spirits is um, an evolution, the product of an evolution of an idea over time. Yes. And we see it, yeah, come, come in um, closest to the modern ideas in the new testament which has the newest literature yes and and also in line with that one right since my work um, concerns religious syncretism and you have also Mm -hmm. mentioned uh, some of the aspects like marriage original sin homosexuality abortion and hell and the examples that you have mentioned uh, you said that these are some of the you know silent issues that are there in the Bible. And also at the same time, the Bible really doesn't say much about these things, but uh, actually we have really, you know, imputed this into the Bible through our culture and the cultural norms that we have. And I think uh, this has so much to do also with uh, the kind of syncretism that is happening around cultures, right? So for me, as I look at Christianity also, I mean, in my work, um, syncretism is something which is very important. And I think I also see Christianity as a product of the syncretic aspect of the surrounding culture, beliefs and practices and all, right? So do you have something to say on the syncretic aspect of uh, Christianity in that sense? Well, yeah, sure. The, um, the religions of the times yes. <laughs> reflected, they didn't you know, come out of nowhere. Yeah. They didn't develop in a vacuum. And so they inevitably reflect either the things that they were pushing against. Those can be some of the strongest, right? Um, Or the things that they brought with them from from religious traditions of their ancestors. Um, To be specific, we find, for instance, um, the, a story of Rebecca and the idols that mm. she had, her family's objects that she wanted to bring with her when she and Jacob fled from her uncle's place. And um, that shows that, that there was alive and well a practice of um, valuing objects that were identified in some sacred capacity. And um, in other places in the texts, we find real um, effort to distinguish we, the righteous few, from those, the pagan other. 
And often when those kinds of things happen, the pe- you, if you peel back the layers a little bit, you discover that the pagan other actually had been us mm. <laughs> and we're trying to do something different here. Um, there's one school of thought that rather than, you know, Joshua coming in and, and killing and getting rid of all of the Canaanites in the land and then establishing, you know, this Israel that was the monotheistic God worshiping, God fearing people that, uh, that that community of, um, the God fearing, God worshiping people actually emerged out of, um, a Canaanite culture, uh, that, ascribed to worship of Yahweh and possibly a partner, a female consort to a male Yahweh deity, um, Asherah. We have some archaeological evidence of that. Uh, But we get real pushback against those um, syncretistic impulses in in the biblical texts as a way of defining the self over and against the other. Yeah. And of course, Christianity was very much informed by the um, religions of its time. The Roman traditions were not completely absent (laughs) from the ways that Christianity developed. Yeah. And there's so much that seems to, you know, talk about this book. I mean, there's so much that we can really talk about this book. But again, at the same time, there are time constraints and the time, you know, we have certain limited time. So we'll have to come to an end. But I would like to say this about the book. I mean, this book is an invitation to both the believer and the non-believer in a sense of Christian, right? And also at the same time, this book uh, is a critical look at the Bible, but also at the same time, bringing out this dynamism and the beauty in the Bible itself. So I think to the listeners, I mean, we have, to the listeners, we have just touched the iceberg here. And I think there's so much to dig in in this book. And I think to all the listeners, I would suggest all of you to get hold of this very book and to read it. I think you will thoroughly enjoy this book. Also, at the same time, you know, find new ways of trying to understand uh, and trying to read the Bible. Because the last chapter is about the Ten Commandments for reading the Bible. And uh, the author has taken, you know, uh, Dr. Swenson has taken the blueprint from the Ten Commandments itself, and that is something which is really interesting. I think any readers who picks up this book will be really interested by the last chapter also. I mean, that will be like a treat, right? Uh, the last chapter will be like a treat. And I think this is uh, something which is very important. I think uh, I these are some of the questions that I, I, I've had that I want to explore. There are so many which I want to talk about, but I think we'll have to end the conversation here. So, uh, Dr. Swinson, uh, what is your net, next project? What are you up to these days? And also at the same time, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what, what are the platforms uh, where anyone can reach out to you, any social media or uh, anything? Yeah. Well, thank you again, Tiat, for this wonderful conversation. It's just so much fun to talk to you about it. And I really... Um, I really appreciate your excitement about this this dynamism of the Bible and our in the invitation to engage with it that clearly um, has has gotten through to you, struck a chord with you, and I really appreciate that. Um, I can be reached. I, I have a website, kristenswenson.com, and there is a contact page there. It goes to my my email, so I do see those, and I love to hear from folks. Um, The book is called A Most Peculiar Book, um, which was something, A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible, which um, was the suggestion of my editor. And I think it's a really nice um, title for that um, subject. It is such a peculiar book, the Bible, and um, strange and wonderful. And again, I'm glad, Tiat, that you could appreciate that as a Christian and that this is not a book that intends to, to in, a, in any way, undermine the power of the Bible, but instead to give folks an opportunity to recognize what's weird about it and try to make some sense of that. My next project, I, I have a couple things in the works. I've, I've actually been writing some fiction, which is a lot of fun, um, some set in the ancient world. But I also am working on a project that is... Um, an expansion of that final chapter that you were talking about, Tia, uh, 10 commandments for reading. 
the Bible. So that's that's in the works as well, and we'll see where it goes. In the meantime, it's just wonderful to visit with you, and um, I wish you well in your studies as well. Yes, very, very exciting things ahead of you, and uh, thank you so much for joining me, and take care. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Tiat.